Good morning again. If you have the Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, page 717 in the Church Bibles. Mark, chapter 11, page 717 in the Church Bibles. And in just a moment, we're going to read beginning in verse 20. And if you're visiting, we've been working through Mark's Gospel verse by verse. And so the reason why we're here this morning is this is where we should be. While you're turning there, just one other announcement. Um, You probably saw the table as you walked in. We are going to uh, be sponsoring a booth at the Itasca County Fair, August 15th through the 19th. And it's just a simple way to connect with people. So as always, volunteers are needed to greet people, hand out balloons, gospel conversations. And there's a game there and candy we pass out as well. So if you're interested in that, through that door, you'll see the table to my left. And um, it's a good way to connect with our community. Okay, let's read the Bible. Verse 20, Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. This would be Jesus and the disciples. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. So that your sins and he- your fa- so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. If you have an NIV, you might notice a little text note there, verse twenty six. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your sins. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word this morning. If you would please, let's bow together and and pray and seek the help that we need, Father. By your spirit, for your glory and our good, please help us now. This was a really hard text for me to understand. So we really need your mercy. I, God, really need your mercy as we study the Bible and you teach us to pray. For Jesus' sake we ask this. Amen. Well, this week I read an online article uh, from the kind of mega blog page medium, and the article which has the title, The First Day of the Rest of My Life as a Widower, was written by a gentleman named Jonathan Santlifer, who was trying to put down in words what the loss of his wife was doing to him. And as you can imagine, it breaks a person's heart um, When you read it, the story goes that his wife was headed to the hospital for a routine day surgery, a torn meniscus. He quotes from the doctor who told him, this procedure will be no big deal. However, the next day, a different doctor will tell Jonathan, I'm so sorry, we did all we could. Just a little portion of the letter. Everything was happening in hyperspeed. I'm staring at my wife's face, gone pale, and the room going gray. I'm backed up against the wall. I'm watching the unwatchable. I'm watching my wife die. So when I read that article and reading the verses that I 
just read, especially verse 24, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you received it and it will be yours. My mind immediately went back to a terrible day many years ago now when the wife of a very kind gentleman I served had died. Her death also began with something routine. She was feeling a bit sick. She determined to go to her family doctor. Maybe it was the flu. However, it was more than the flu. And in less than a week, at the age of 62, she had died. We lived close enough to the family that when it happened and the husband called me, I arrived there when the first responders were still there. He saw me. He came up to me. And he came up to me with his Bible in his hand. Tears were just running down his face. And he said something to me. And he wasn't angry when he said it. It was more like a helpless child. And I don't want you to judge him when I tell you what he said. He said to me, what happened, Pastor? What happened? I prayed this. And he points to the scripture that we just read. And then he quotes from the scripture. And he said, I believed. I believed. I had faith. But she's dead. It was terrible. Maybe the worst moment in my life so far. (laughs) And what do you do with all that? I mean, personally and pastorally, I, I hope I did the right thing. I held them a long time. I prayed with him. I talked with him as you know, best as you could in that kind of moment. But he was still asking the question, what happened? What happened? And you see, all these things, the, the passage that is before us now, the reading of the online article which drove my mind to that man and his wife and his own understanding, that man of the Bible, and the fact, and we know this, there's so much you know, false teaching which often comes from passages like this. All of it kind of just exploded in my mind and it helped underpin for me how incredibly important it is to properly understand our Bible and how incredibly important it is that we find ourselves sitting consistently under the proper teaching and explanation of the Bible. Because we dare not try to understand the Bible only on our own. And the responsibility then to properly explain the Bible, which is granted to a person like me, If you had to summarize it, maybe it's best summarized in Acts 8 when Philip is encountering the Ethiopian eunuch. And so Philip was sent by God to meet up with this Ethiopian, and this Ethiopian was reading the scripture. And as the man is reading out loud, Philip asked him the question, do you understand what you are reading? Right? Do you understand what you are reading? To which the man replied in great humility, how can I? How can I unless someone explains it to me? And you see, that explanation, that is the responsibility of the pastor teacher. So in light of that, and in light of the verses before us, we have three words here to guide us to explain this text to us. They're pretty simple. Fruit, faith, and forgiveness. We're going to spend most of our time on faith, so don't panic. The sermon will end. Have faith that it will end. But the first two will be a little bit shorter. Verse 20, if your Bible is open... And you'll see that what Jesus declared in verse 14, right? May no one ever eat fruit from you again. That curse was fulfilled, verse 20. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And so last time we learned that the fig tree was a picture of unbelieving Judaism, which found its apex in their behavior in the temple, specifically among the religious leaders. And the fig tree was being used as an active parable, a prophetic symbolism to reveal that what happened to the fig tree 
And its death was an indication of the certain judgment of God which was coming on the temple and coming upon all the ceremonial legalistic externalism which made a great show of religion but was absolutely useless which was also represented so much in the teaching and the leadership of the Pharisees and those other people in in charge in the temple. And so what Jesus did in the temple, which we learned last time, the tipping of the tables, the, the driving away of the buyers and the sellers, preaching the word, it was meant to be dramatic. It was meant to be unmistakable. It was meant to bring clarity. And it was meant to serve as a warning. And the warning was this. The judgment of God is coming over this place. But even as I say that, this idea of God's judgment, I mean, as you think about it, especially in the summertime, right? We have, our minds are so many other places. Maybe it's foreign in our day. Maybe it's one of the last things that we think about in the ins and outs of our days, if not for ourselves, least of all for the people that we know that are outside of Jesus. So I say that because it's important to remember that the remodeling that Jesus did in the temple courts wasn't going to stay that way, was it? I mean, you do know that when Jesus leaves the temple, the money changers' tables would have been put back. The buyers and sellers, they would have been welcomed back. And the religious authorities, they'll keep on robbing. And the people will always do what they've always done. And these leaders will teach the way they've always taught, completely missing the opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus. So it will all seem like everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did in the temple never happened. Jesus will leave, and things will go back away. They have always gone until when? Forever? No. Almost four decades later, practically speaking, September 70 A.D., some scholars nail it down to a date, September 2nd, 70 A.D., the temple in Jerusalem was burned by the hands of the Romans, just like Jesus said, not one stone standing on another. The temple, if you like, will be destroyed, verse 20. From its roots, just like the fig tree. And Peter, verse 21, he records for us, or Mark records for us, Peter's reaction is more than likely, one, that it actually happened, but two, that it happened so fast. I mean, trees don't die that quick. And that needs to help us to remember that there is a judgment day coming. The life will not continue on as it is. And the speed of that day, when that day comes, it will be like hyperspeed. So the cursing of the fig tree and all that it represents will be nothing. It's nothing compared to that day which is coming when the king will curse again. This is what the king will say, Jesus. Matthew uh, chapter 25, verse 41. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So you have a gospel conversation with people. You have a gospel sermon with people. They hear it. Maybe a little bit moved, but nothing's changed. They go back to the way things were, like it never, ever happened. But the day is coming with all that culmination of truth. If you would, will come on them like the force of hyperspeed. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. It'll be right, but it's going to be terrible. So if you're here today and you don't have Christ, I would almost beg you, Listen well to Jesus preached. And if you're here today and you've got family and friends and enemies and neighbors and colleagues and acquaintances and you know they don't know Christ, keep on speaking. Keep on praying. Keep on keeping on. 
even as the evil one does everything that he can to make the things of time more intriguing to us than the things of eternity. He's really good at that. God help us to resist it. That's number one, that's fruit. Now what about faith? That's our second point. Now the challenge we have before is, is how do we get from verses 21 to 22? It's a little hard. If you read the parallel section in Matthew's gospel, you'll find that Matthew helps us a bit. This is, I'll just read it to you. Matthew says, Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, If you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. In other words, Jesus is helping them in this transition by saying, Look, there has been a dramatic display of the power of God in this fig tree. And you have that power of God at your disposal when you act in believing faith. I'm going to say that again. There's been a dramatic display of God's power here before you. And you have the power of God at your disposal when you act in believing faith. If you like what Jesus did to the fig tree, it's going to serve as a model for how people who have faith in God may draw on the power of God. I want that to settle in your mind for a little bit. Just, just let it be what it is. True believers, people who have faith in God, may draw on the power of God in prayer. Now, you remember in verse 17, what was the problem in the temple? Holy smokes. They didn't pray. Pray, right? The, the temple has essentially been a dead place for prayer. And now Jesus is giving the instructions to his disciples so that they could become a community of prayer. And that the prayers they pray would be the prayers of believing faith. You know, not the meaningless kind of routine prayers that was happening in the temple. Yeah, they were praying, praying, but they weren't praying, praying. And don't forget, chapter 9, it wasn't so long ago. Remember when the disciples had tried to cast out that demon and the little boy? And they failed. Why did they fail? One very simple reason. They failed to pray, right? They failed to see that their need was so great and their ability was so pitiful that they failed to ask God for help. If they would have done that, things would have been right, but they didn't. Now, if verse 22 and following are instructions on prayer, and it seems to me that they are, then it stands to reason that faith and forgiveness, which we'll talk about at the end, it's fundamental to prayer. Have faith in God. Jesus said, verse 23, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, it does not doubt in their hearts, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Now you're going to have to admit, that reads pretty easy. It reads very easy. Yet the, that fact of its ease doesn't discount the fact that this verse has been misapplied, it's been misused, or frankly not used. So much so that people, Christians, are frightened of this verse so that either one, they pay little attention to it, or two, they try to bury it with a few hundred qualifications, right? Kind of like wet blanket after wet blanket. If you like, it's akin to our parents telling us, hey kids, we're going to go to Disney World. And everybody's like, yeah, Disney World. After the cheers go down, they say, yeah, but it's going to be in like 15 years. See? In other words, the exciting privilege to pray in faith, in, in mountain-moving faith, is buried with a great many yeah buts. 
right? Someone raises the verse up, someone else brings it down with a yeah, but it doesn't really mean what it says, and yeah, but it actually means this, and yeah, but it actually means that. So much so that people love saying, why in the dickens is the verse in there in the first place? What a letdown, you know? Thanks a lot, Jesus. What a cruel joke. Now, we're going to have to think through this verse. And to help us think through this verse, I just have three headings. First heading is, number one, it concerns the object of our faith. This is very encouraging to me. The object of our faith is, verse 22, none other than God. Have faith in God. By the way, it's written in the imperative, which means it's a command. (laughs) In a nice way, Jesus is waving his finger at us, have faith in God, okay? It's a command. So from time to time, you'll hear people say, have faith in faith, right? That's like, have faith, okay? You've got to believe. Well, that's good. I like it. Or have faith in yourself. Do you believe in yourself? (laughs) Not always. (laughs) It's me. Sorry. Or it's like code. Be positive. Right? Positive thinker. And if you're a positive thinker and your positive thinking is going to be the key to getting the positive thing that you want. Are you positive of that? Right? However, Jesus' words, very clear. The object of our faith is to be faith in God. And it is the object of our faith which gives faith its significance. Because we know from another place in the Bible, we just need a mustard seed face. By, by the way, I hid a mustard seed in here somewhere on Friday. You'll never find it. But I just wanted to give the implications. That's all you need. Okay, so this is not you going, faith. It's like faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, and so on. That's the Apostles' Creed. In other words, when we say that, we're affirming what Jesus is saying here. I have faith in God. I believe in God. So if that's true, and it is true, then it stands to reason that the more we know about God, the better things will be in the realm of our faith. The more clear things will be. So I was thinking about J.I. Packer's book, uh, Knowing God. And in the first chapter, he has an introduction where he quotes from Charles Spurgeon, uh, January 7th, 1855. Spurgeon is preaching a sermon at Southwark Church in England. And this is part of it. He says, no subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind, but also help the mind than thoughts of God. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go Plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so seek, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing, meditation upon the subject of the Godhead. Well, what's he saying? He's saying, no God. No God in his word. No God in his word in his son. No God in his word in his church. No God proper. No God better and better. And when you know God proper and you know God better and better, you will not be disappointed. You'll be greatly helped. It's like medicine for your soul. It stirs the mind. It excites the heart. It animates our actions and it ignites our prayers. Why? Because the object of our faith in our prayers is faith. Not in ourselves. Not in our goodness. But in God. That's number one. Number two. The nature or the extent of our faith is Jesus saying here, 
I want your faith to be so daring, to be so audacious, to be so bold and brave. That's what he's saying. This is like a child saying to his father, you can do anything, God. I know you can. So I want you to have such confidence in God that you are prepared to ask him to do things that to all but the eyes of faith are seemingly impossible. Right? Seemingly impossible. In other words, by the simple exercise of faith in God, in prayer, God can do what is humanly and utterly impossible. That's what Jesus is saying. Because faith in God can accomplish great works, can overcome great difficulties as great and as formidable as throwing a mountain into the sea. Now you look at that verse, and is that not what it's saying? So in effect, what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to believe in a God who's too wise to make mistakes, who's too kind to be cruel, who's too generous to be stingy, who is too powerful to be governed by the normal forces of the natural universe, unless he wants to be, i.e. the cross. And so the terminology that Jesus uses is not unfamiliar to them because this is rabbinic terminology. The rabbis would use this exact same phrase and they would use it to help their people pray about something which was impossible or incredible. And God was the only one that could do it. So they would say to that mountain, figuratively, we'll get to that in a moment, do this or that. And the idea that the impossible or the incredible can be done by God. You see? By the way, they were more than likely on the Mount of Olives when, when um, Jesus was teaching them this. And so I was told that when you're on the Mount of Olives, you can look down in the city of Jerusalem, which means you can see the temple. And Herod's dad, I'm pretty sure, was the one who was the architect of the temple. And it was said that the space that needed to be cleared for the temple was so large, it was like moving a mountain. And it was moved. Because the temple was there. The object of our faith is God. The nature of our faith is daring, is large, it is way beyond ourselves. Third, the reading of this text, though, is figurative. And what I mean by this, do you think the disciples, when they heard Jesus' words there, do you think that they said, okay, let's just try to move the mountain? I'm going to do it right now. You see, I think that if they understood that as literal language, then I'm pretty sure that Peter would have tried it. I mean, he tried to walk on water. That's a big deal. I think Peter might have said, okay, Jesus, I'm going to take you at your word literally, and this mountain's going to go down 4,000 feet, I think, up, and then up, and then into the sea. Because, you see, if you go literal, you're going to be disappointed. And to the person who would argue for a kind of a literalistic fulfillment of this, then what you're doing is you're falling right into the hands of your atheist friends. And I hope you do have some atheist friends. Because if you check what atheists do with this verse, and I did, you'll find that this is one of the passages that they use to build their case that the Bible's bunk and God is dead. Right? God is dead. And they summarize, summarize it by saying these verses are wrong because clearly God does not answer prayer. Have you seen anyone tossing mountains around lately? So the reason why no mountains are going around is because there's no God who moves mountains. He doesn't exist. So you see, this is figurative language. This is proverbial language. In technical terms, it's aphoristic. And what that means is if you stretch it out too far, you'll break it. Okay? Stretch it out too far, you'll break it. Think of it this way. You wake up in the morning and you're you're off. Husband, wife, mom, dad, you're off. And so you have kids. And you say to the kids, hey, today's my day off. 
and I want to do whatever you want to do. Whatever you want, we're going to do it. Now, the sensible child does not look at their parents and say, listen, you know what I'd like to do? I think I'd like to knock over a target today. You want to go steal some stuff? And your dad's like, no, we can't do that. Well, dad, you said anything. You said it, right? Or, you know what I want to do? I want to fly to Beijing. I saw a show on Netflix about sushi. I think I'd like to go to the restaurant where the sushi was sold. Dad, take me. (laughs) See, if you stretch it, you're going to break it. Still, when you approach this text, you should never back down from what Jesus is teaching here so that we would kind of simmer it down, simmer down our confidence in God who can do the impossible and the incredible. You should never give up your covenant privileges. You should know your covenant privileges. You should never minimize the force of the meaning here nor subtract, if you would, from its implications. That's Sinclair Ferguson. So the person who says, okay, he said this is figurative and not literal, so he's trying to minimize the force of its meaning and he's trying to subtract from its implications, that's wrong. It's wrong twice. No, what we're saying is let the Scripture say what it says in the form of language it's written, and when you do this and you obey this, you're going to find out something. You're going to find that our God is a God who wants to do for you things which are incredible and impossible. In the context here in the verse, guys, we've just come from the temple. It's an absolute mess. It was meant to be a house of prayer for everyone in every place. Now it's like a market. It's thievery. You're my guys. You've seen what I've done to this fig tree. You know my teaching. That is the model of what I want you to do when you take me at your word, my word. And when you do take me at my word and you do what God has planned for you, guys, you're going to see some incredible things. And you're going to see some impossible things be done. Guys, the world needs prayers of God's people asking God to do the incredible and the impossible. That was true then. It's even more true now. Now, there's a whole lot of examples in the Bible and history that we could draw from to kind of help us along the way. There's David versus Goliath. Joshua in the battle of Jericho, Daniel in the lion's dead. But I think the best man that I can think of who held on to God's truth in faith and believed that God was able to do which seemed totally impossible and absolutely incredible was Abraham, right? Abraham's a really old man. Excuse me, but he has a really old wife. And Abraham was becoming more and more old and his wife, even though she was probably lovely, was becoming more and more old. They're hanging on to a promise of becoming parents. And every day they live, the likelihood of him becoming a father and her becoming a mother is is rapidly diminishing. In fact, from the human perspective, that ship has sailed, right? That, That, done. It's done. But listen to Paul. Paul writes, Romans 4, verse 18, against all hope, Abraham and hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Okay, so he has a promise from God. It's big. You're not just going to have a boy. You're going to have a family that um, is vast as the stars in the sky. And yet the clock of his life is ticking. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine their conversations at breakfast? 
No child yet. Can you imagine their conversations at bedtime? I mean, think about that for a minute or two, but only for a minute or two. They must have said somewhere along the way, how can this be? Yet, listen to the Bible. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Abraham was not perfect. Read your Bible. But Abraham had faith. That's faith. That's faith. So Jesus takes his 12 before the cross and he directs him in this way. And if you read the Acts of the Apostles, this is one of the lessons that connected with these guys. They got this lesson. How do we know? Well, Acts chapter 3 is one illustration. There's a beggar. He's begging all the time. He's there. He needs to be healed. Peter and John are headed to the temple. They have no money. They probably didn't take any money because they know what happens to the temple. But anyway, Peter says to him, I don't have any money, but such as I have to you, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. Don't overlook that. That's faith. No money in his pocket. The guy can't walk. He's been that way for a long, long time. And Peter says, get up in the name of Jesus. And the man gets up. Do you think, do you think Peter, when, when the man asked for money, thought about the fig tree and thought about the temple and the mess? And then he thinks about the words of Jesus. Guys, remember, God is able to do the incredible. He's able to do the impossible. He's able to do the, beyond the capacity of your ability and your imagination. Remember the mountain? Go throw yourself into the mountain. Remember that? And it was done. The guy who hadn't walked now walks. Now, Jesus continues to build on his argument. That's verse 24. Therefore, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. That sounds a lot like Abraham in Romans 4, right? Fully persuaded that God is able to do what he promised. He's banking on it. If you believe that you receive it, this is what it's saying now, it will be yours. And the word there is whatever you ask. That's the phrase. And once again, you know, don't set this aside by a thousand qualifications. Just, just hold it in your mind. Let it sit there. Enjoy it. I mean, think. Think about the first readers, the Christians in Rome, who probably didn't have any other text. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But they have to read this letter on its own. Whatever you ask. I mean, Jesus said in his ministry early on, if you're evil... And you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven good, give good gifts to those who ask him? You do know that you can ask God for good things, don't you? Remember the saying, I, say, I said this at the last prayer service. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power is such that no one can ever ask too much. Do you believe that? You can ask God for anything good. And I promise you, while it might not mean you'll always get it, I promise you, it will be the best. If you get it, good. If you don't get it, it'll still be good. That's your God. But you've got to ask. James 4, right? The reason why you do not have is because you do not ask. And when you do ask, your motives are all wrong, right? It's only about personal pleasure. Is pleasure wrong? Absolutely not. But in that context, he's like, come on, all you, only you, you only ask for you? Remember that song a long time ago? Only you. It's only you. Jesus says here, trust God. 
Trust God. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, we had a rule last time, a fundamental rule of biblical interpretation, which is really, really important. It said that you need to let the Scripture interpret the Scripture, right? So our interpretation of this Scripture has, has to yield to the totality of the Scripture. In other words, this verse cannot be in opposition against any other verse in the Bible. Can't be in opposition to the words of Jesus especially. So we need some help. Now stay with me now. Here's some things. They're not exhaustive, but they're selective. This will help us. Number one, when Jesus said, whatever you ask in prayer, we need to be humble enough to say, Father, I don't know what always to ask for. Okay, let me tell you my problem this week. I was pacing the halls upstairs because this was my problem. I believe God, what he said here in verse 24. So the first thing I said was, holy cow, I'm going to pray for this. I don't think I said holy cow, but something like that. I'm going to pray for this. God's going to do it. Then I went over here. I'm going to pray for that. God's going to do it. But as I was thinking it through, what I prayed for for this and what I prayed for with that were kind of in conflict with each other. So I was like, what am I going to do? I know God can do this. I know God can do that. But this, this, and that are like against each other. Not that they're bad, but the, the lines are different. So what did I do? <laughs> I said, darn it, Joe. <laughs> Can't even do that right. No, I, I said, Help me, God. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Humility. Second, there can't be any hypocrisy, right? The, the, the Pharisees made theater out of prayer. Great show, right? They, they dressed the part, they verbalized the part, and in their heart, nothing was real. Humility, sincerity. Third, consistency. Matthew 7, you ask and you keep on asking. You knock and you keep on knocking. Consistency. You see, we, we need to think through our prayers. Because I promise you, in that consistency, something might be tweaked or changed by us in our prayers. Fourth, so we have humility, we have sincerity, we have consistency. For charity. All our prayers are framed by love, charity. That we love everyone who we are concerned to and for in prayer. And we love the God who we're calling on in prayer. And our prayers of charity will never, ever, ever diminish the power of God. God has plenty of power to help you just fine and help the world that you are praying for. Finally, number five. So we have humility, sincerity, consistency, charity. Ultimately are framed by God's sovereignty. Submission to God's will. Many of you know the scripture in 1 John. It's according to his will, it will be done. Your will be done. All right, so listen. You might be saying, I knew it. Yeah, I knew it. I was waiting for this love train to stop, right? You had us all excited about the whatever and the anything. And now you're just like, you know, while you were preaching, I was actually writing down a list of prayers. This is going to be great. And now you threw a wet blanket over it when you said, your will be done. You ruined it. With the Bible. <laughs> Hold on. If your will be done, God, is a downer to us, can I suggest to you that either A, we don't truly know God, or B, we need to know God better. Ask yourself, is God more loving than you? Is God more generous than you? Is God more kind, more gracious, more forgiving, and wiser than you? Yes. So why would you ever have trouble with saying in your prayers, 
God, your will be done. Why? Let me help you with a story. About two years ago, that's actually it's three years ago now, in our household, when my daughter turned a junior in high school, we determined that she's never going to ever be able to keep her room clean. So every Monday on my day off, I said, I'm going to clean her room. Some of you know this. So year by year now, week by week, I cleaned her room. Now, some of you might be thinking, holy cow, you need to get some books about raising kids, right? Because here it is. The Franzones are sovereign, if you would, over their daughter. They determined that they're going to clean her room. She'll never have to worry about it her last two years of school. She was a good girl. She was working hard. She had a job. She had lots of activities. There was sports. A little girl would stay up till midnight studying. I was like, oh, we've got to help her. When we help people here, we've got to do the same thing at home, right? So we've got to help her. So every Monday, I'd clean her room. Sometimes my wife would help. She never helped. No, I'm just kidding. She helped lots and lots. Okay. The years went by. So now the moment of truth. We moved her up to Eau Claire this year. She has, finally has her own place this summer. And we moved her up there and we left the place really clean because that's what we do. And so we went home and Lord, thank you God, we were able to go see her again and we were driving in the car and the moment of truth was coming. And so I was thinking about, is her house going to be clean? Did we ruin her for those two years that she's never going to know how to clean a room again? Here's what happened. In the car, I told my wife, I said, honey, you, you really did a good job of that whole clean her room thing. Honey, you are a great wife. You are a great mom. You made a great decision when you decided that you and I would clean her room. You did it good. Why was I doing that? Because, like, I wanted to throw it on her. We walked into the house, and the whole thing was a mess, right? It's like, you're awesome, Nicole. You are great. Just was covering myself. That's what pastors do sometimes. But anyway, so we walk into the house. No kidding. It was like, oh, smelled like flowers. I'm pretty sure there were little birdies, you know, flying around. And it was beautiful. And I'm like, yes. See, here's the point. If we'd have told you that somewhere along the journey, some of you might have been like, that's dumb. You've got to make the kid, you, what room? You, you, you weak dad. Sovereignty. Let it play out. Let it play out. There's a day coming when you'll see it, and it'll be glorious. It's the same thing. Your will be done. Don't have any trouble with that. And you see, loved ones, what can help us here is when we have difficult understanding of a passage like this, the one thing that I always do is say, okay, how would Jesus do this? How would Jesus do this prayer in faith? And we have our answer. When Jesus said, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it. It will be yours. It works perfectly with Jesus. Because later on, Jesus is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to pray. He's so honest. He says, Father, everything is possible with you. Got you. My faith is fine. Take this cup from me. I don't want to go to the cross. See, that's honesty. But the cup was not taken from him. Did Jesus lack faith? Was he having a bad faith day, a low faith day? Did he not believe that he would receive? No. Listen to what he said. He said, Father, not what I want, but what you want. It's perfect balance. Absolute confidence in God. Everything is possible with you, Father. However, I'm completely submitted to your will. Gosh, I'd write that down. Perfect balance. I am absolutely confident in your power, God. However, I am completely submitted to your will. So, so the very boldness, the bravery, the childlike, almost kind of Pollyannish, my dad can do anything, is there. But don't let the fact that your father's will is going to be done, let it, if you would, mitigate or lessen 
the fact that he can do all things and he will do them well because God's merciful and in his mercy he controls us by his sovereignty. Listen to this quote. When prayer is the source of faith's power and the means of its strength, God's sovereignty is its only restriction. When prayer is a source of faith's power and the means of its strength, God's sovereignty, God's will, is its only restriction. Can I be really honest with you? There was a prayer that I was praying for 16 years, okay? I can almost tell you the day that I started praying it. For 16 years, I had trouble with thy will be done until that moment came, and it wasn't so long ago, to be really honest with you, where I could say, thy will be done, and mean it here and in here. We need to get to forgiveness, but let's, let me say this. If anyone ever tells you that the reason why your prayers aren't answered is because of your faith, you just tell them to have a Coke and a smile and read their Bible, right? Have a Coke and a smile and read your Bible. Don't. You just need mustard seed faith, and the object of your faith is not your faith. It's God. St. Clair Ferguson, again, the prayer of faith is ultimately asking God to accomplish what he has promised in his word. Isn't that beautiful? The prayer of faith, asking God to accomplish what he has promised in his word. Finally, forgiveness, and we'll be very, very brief here. Verse 25, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. The point is so simple. How can we who have been forgiven so much refuse to forgive forgive the small debts of others? We have a trillion plus debt to God. How in the world would we refuse to forgive others when their debt is mere pennies to us? And yet we know that we're tempted to not forgive. I would venture to say that an unforgiving spirit is the number one destroyer of a genuine spiritual life. Jesus Christ will forgive the person. Why won't you? Unforgiveness unforgiveness can be felt in our words. It can be sometimes seen in our eyes. Unforgiveness has effect in every relationship beginning with God. So please don't ever say you are seeking God in prayer and yet you harbor anger and unforgiveness in your heart towards your brothers and sisters. This is John MacArthur. How can we possibly be Christian if we whose unpayable debt has been erased refuse to forgive those who have wronged us? Perfect sense. Unforgiveness will hurt you. Unforgiveness will hurt this congregation. Unforgiveness will hinder your prayers. What will happen is is that this God who can do the impossible and this God who can do the incredible will seem very small to you. And your mind won't be stirred and your lips won't be loosed and your heart won't be animated to ask God for the impossible and the incredible. We need to stop Jesus is saying here about the fig tree, I was looking for fruit in it. I didn't find any. Jesus is saying, what I'm saying about prayer and being bold is it's all about faith. Check your life for it. And what I'm saying about unforgiveness is fundamental to prayer. Check your life for it. And if you find yourself with neither, then there is a Savior. Holy cow, there is a Savior who is waiting, who is waiting for you. 
Now, all week long, I was debating whether I should tell this story that I have on this note or not. I think I'm going to tell it. Is that all right? There's a movie. It's a wonderful movie called Little Boy. The story goes like this. His dad went off to war, World War II. A letter comes back home, MIA, missing in action. And all through the story, this little boy, cute little boy, wants to believe that his dad's not missing in action. He wants him to come home. Now, this is a story. This is not theology, so take, take it easy, okay? And so all through the story, all the events of his life, do you believe you can do this? And he would say, yes, I can believe I can do this. Nobody believed him. So he had a little show. It was a magician show. And of course, the kid's standing there and he wants the bottle to come to him. And it's all a trick. We understand that. But the magician says, do you believe you can do this? And the boy says, I believe I can do this. And goes like this. And here comes the bottle right to him. And then his brother is giving him a hard time about his dad. Dad's gone. Dad's gone. No, I believe I can bring dad back. Oh, yeah. Perfect scenario. Big mountain. Can you move that mountain? Here he goes. Little boy gets there. He does his hands like that. And he goes, Guess what happens? It's a movie. Earthquake. Mountain is moving. Everybody's like, finally. The big day. The big day. He goes to the edge of the dock. He stands on the edge. He's trying to get his dad to come back home. (laughs) Do you believe you can do this? I believe I can do this. Let's baptize that. Do you believe God can do this? Whatever that this is. Do you believe God can do this? Yes, I believe. God can do this. You don't have to go like that. You believe. You believe. Have faith in God. Don't let the simplicity of that ruin its truth. Let's pray. Father, when we fear our faith will fail, Christ will hold us fast. When the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold us fast. We could never keep our hold through life's fearful path, for our love is often cold. Christ must hold us fast. He will hold us fast. He will hold us fast. For our Savior loves us so. He will hold us fast. Amen.